time in the history of man, nations combined to fight against nations using the crude weapons of those days. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe, and men turned to science for new devices of warfare, which reached an unparalleled peak in their capacity for destruction. And now, fought with the terrible weapons of super science, menacing all mankind and every creature on Earth, comes the War of the World. Well, that was the opening uh, dialogue, monologue, introduction, and music voiceover. To... <laughs> voiceover, thank you. Voiceover. I knew there was a word for that. For War of the Worlds, released in 19... 1953. August 13th of 1953. I was in the theater waiting for its debut. You would have been about 12 years old at that time? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Popcorn in one hand, a Coke in the other, ready to go. It was on a double feature with uh, When Worlds Collide, I think, or Destination Moon, one or the other. Oh, that's awesome. I would love to see that. And it's directed by Byron Haskins from a novel by H.G. Wells, uh, starring Gene Barry, Anne Robinson, Les Tremaine, Robert Cornthwaite, Lewis Martin as the pastor that gets zapped. Uh, let's see, who else that we, should we talk about? I think those are the main I think, folks. I think that's the main. That's the main group. It's it's good to remember that uh, uh, Robert Cornwaith was was a key player in the thing from another world. Oh yeah, he was the scientist that wanted to m try to make uh, friends with the uh, alien creature. That's and he right. Was, he was growing their offspring in the uh, greenhouse or in the lab. That was so, so scary. War of the Worlds. Yeah, this is uh, the last of our movies in our science fiction festival that was suggested by Arthur Skulko. And thanks, Arthur, for uh, the great movie suggestions this month. And uh, here's a, a short introduction from Arthur for The War of the Worlds. Hello, this is Arthur Skolko, coming from sunny Norwich, Connecticut. Happy to be back on Classic Movie Reviews, presenting another fantastic science fiction film. This one is the 1953 super classic, The War of the Worlds, directed by Byron Haskin, 
produced by George Powell. The two main actors we, we see in this film is Gene Barry and Anne Robinson. This film has been considered to be quite groundbreaking. Uh, it did receive the Special Effects Award that year at the Academy Awards, but it truly does present a very extreme sense of the alien world at the time where uh, aliens were in the consciousness in the public in the United States as well as the world. And a lot of the important character of this movie is coming into the idea that you have invaders coming and it's a pretty much an extreme all-out assault and we're following the lives of more or less regular individuals, not so much uh, presidents and uh, high up uh, position individuals. Many films uh, have been influenced by it. Mars Attacks is, is one example from the 1990s. Sit back and enjoy this movie either for the first time or hopefully if you've enjoyed it before watching it again to enjoy truly one of the great classic films of the sci-fi genre, 1953 the War of the Worlds. That's great. Thanks, Arthur, again. And if anyone else would like to join us on a regular basis uh, on the show and be able to pick the theme for the month and the uh, kind of the main movie that month, uh, head on over to Patreon and check out Tier 4. And that's the tier where you'd be able to uh, participate in that way. And it's free to participate by leaving comments. So we encourage you to do that. You can leave comments on our website and on Patreon and also over on Facebook if you do a search for classicmoviereviews.net and that's all spelled out like D-O-T-N-E-T. All right, so back to our review. I think I'm just going to jump right in here because there's a lot to cover. Go for it. The movie opens up with this opening voiceover. Thank you for reminding me what that's called. And we kind of get this... Uh, really cool tour of the solar system no one would have believed in the middle of the 20th century that human affairs were being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's yet across the gulf of space on the planet mars intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our earth with envious eyes slowly and surely drawing their plans against us Mars is more than 140 million miles from the sun, and for centuries it has been in the last stages of exhaustion. At night, temperatures drop far below zero, even at its equator. The inhabitants of this dying planet looked across space with instruments and intelligences of which we have scarcely dreamed, searching for another world which they could migrate. They could not go to Pluto, outermost of all planets, so cold that its atmosphere lies frozen on its surface. They couldn't go to Neptune or Uranus, twin worlds in eternal night and perpetual cold, both surrounded by an unbreathable atmosphere of methane gas and ammonia vapor. The Martians considered Saturn an attractive world with its many moons and beautiful rings of cosmic dust, but its temperature is close to 270 degrees below zero, and ice lies 15,000 miles deep on its surface. Their nearest world was giant Jupiter, where there are titanic cliffs of lava and ice with hydrogen flaming at the tops. 
where the atmospheric pressure is terrible. Thousands of pounds to the square inch. They couldn't go there. Nor could they go to Mercury, nearest planet to the sun. It has no air. And the temperature at its equator is that of molten lead. Of all the worlds that the intelligences on Mars could see and study, only our own warm Earth was green with vegetation, bright with water, and possessed a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility. It did not occur to mankind that a swift fate might be hanging over us, or that from the blackness of outer space we were being scrutinized and studied, until at the time of our nearest approach to the orbit of Mars during a pleasant summer season, It's, I think, the same kind of a opening that was in the original radio play where we learn about these Martians, these aliens that have been watching the Earth for a long time and their planet is dying and they've looked at other planets in the solar system, but none of those are habitable, so they're going to have to invade Earth. And one of my favorite parts of the movie is we get this really short kind of glimpse of Mars and this city on Mars, and it's all frozen over kind of and dying looking and cold. And I just thought that was really cool. I'd like to go, I'd like to have a movie where we just go explore that city. That would be a fascinating, fascinating one to do. I was going to uh, ask, should we do our uh, opening? Oh, right. Yeah, we, we just... <laughs> I haven't had my coffee yet today. Yeah, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from rainy North Bend today. And this is Bob Johnson uh, in sunny Los Angeles welcoming everyone back to Classic Movie Reviews and the 1953 movie The War of the Worlds with a voiceover by Sir Cedric Hardwick who had the perfect voice for that introduction and had a long career with 80 films. You may remember him from the Ten Commandments. His voice was very commanding in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it sounded a little bit like Orson Welles at some points. Yes, yes. Well, this is a, this is a, a really fun movie. I especially like the first, say, half to two-thirds of the film. We can talk about that, and then the uh, last third or half, I uh, had some questions about some of the things that they put together. But I love the opening with the uh, with the uh, introductions, and then we go to this uh, this peaceful community that looks like Sunnyvale, every place. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and they see uh, they're all kind of out on it. I think it's a Saturday night. Yeah. People are going to the movies, and they're out and about, and and then they see this meteor landing off in the hills and some of the younger folks in the crowd are like is that a fireball or something boy that's big maybe it's a comet Wonder where it led. Miles away, I bet you. Hey, let's go find it. Huh? Probably okay. dropped halfway to Pomona. Oh, who's nearer than that? I'm going to see. Who's coming? And then we also uh, cut to some people in a fire watch tower, 
and they're playing a game of cards and they see this meteor land and they have they call it in kind of the coordinates saying that there's a fire starting out there and that there's little touches in this movie that I like where the, one of the people that's up in the firewatch tower while the other guy is on the phone uh, <laughs> decides to look at the cards of his <laughs> yes of, of the guy on the phone so that he can see what his hand looks like. There's just little things like that that give it more depth and character. He shows up a few scenes later when they, uh, well, they find this media, they find this thing in the earth and they're not quite sure what it is. It's very hot and they can't really do much with it. But uh, one of the things that's uh, uh, important is they find that there are three scientists that happen to be up in those same mountains uh, fishing just by coincidence that they're going to be able to find some people that really know the business and they're from uh, Pacific Tech which I think is a is a cover name for uh, California Tech yeah I think so and uh, the lead scientist is Gene Berry is Clayton Forrester and then we've got uh, other doctors and and they're all sitting around the campfire and uh, the same forest ranger shows up. That's where we see Robert Cornthwaite. That's uh, he's yeah. sitting around the fire there eating fish with them. Yeah, and the uh, forest ranger shows up and says they need to help out and explains that. And while he's there, he also grabs a plate of food and <laughs> gladly takes a cigarette and puts it in his pocket for later for one of the scientists. I got a message for you. You're the guys from Pacific Tech, ain't you? Right. Looks like the fishing was good. Have some. Well, I might just do that. It's about that meteor. They say it's a whop. The district officer told us at the lookout up in the summit. I thought you might be interested. It's about 10 or 12 miles from here, over by Linda Rosa. Are they sure it's a meteor? Didn't come down like one. That's right. Came down kind of spurts, didn't it? Well, you fellows have to figure it out. You're scientists. All I know is they say it's as big as a house and practically red hot. I'd like to borrow your car and take a look at it in the morning. Well, we ought to get back. I can fly Bilderbeck down in your plane. Okay. The insurance is paid up. <laughs> right? No, I'll smoke it later. He really makes himself at home, you know. He's, he's, yes, like <laughs> I don't know, I don't know who that is, but he did a good job of. Uh, he was a freeloader, as as we used to say in the old days, and so I think Clayton Forrester is the one that's uh, the well-known atomic scientist, and uh, he's convinced he needs to go look at the site, and that's when he runs into uh, Linda Rosa. No, Ann Robinson. The town of he runs in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you, wherever, he, he he runs into Sylvia Van Buren, played by Anne Robinson. Yeah, and she's she's going on and on about how there's this famous scientist that's uh, they should contact this guy because he he'd know what's going on and. Did you see it come down? Yes, I was fishing up in the hills. Well, you must have caught plenty with all that tackle. Well, there were three of us. The others flew back in my plane. I don't understand why a meteor that size didn't make a bigger crater. Oh, it hit sideways and skidded in. 
At least that's what I think. I don't really know. But the ranger said a scientist is coming from Pacific Tech. He'll tell us. Clayton Forrester, ever hear of him? What's that fellow trying to do over there? Dig it out? He's top man in astro and nuclear physics. He knows all about meteors. You seem to know all about him. Well, I did a thesis on modern scientists, working for my master's degree. Did it do you any good? Why, sure. I got it. Say, do you have a match? No, I'm sorry. I don't smoke. Forster's the man behind the new atomic engines. They had him on the cover of Time. You know, you've got to rate to get that. Nah, he isn't that good. Well, now, how can you say that when you don't even know him? Oh, I do know him slightly. Oh, what's he like? Well, he's like, uh, like, uh... Oh! Well, you certainly don't look like yourself in that get-up, Dr. Forrester. But I'm happy to meet you anyway. I'm Sylvia Van Buren. I teach library science over at USC. I didn't know how to stop you. Well, I might have recognized you without the beard. And you didn't wear glasses on the time cover. Oh, they're really for long distance. When I want to look at something close, I take them off. Dr. Forrester, he's kind of playing it off like, really? He thinks he, maybe he's not all that smart. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was that was well done. Clever writing there. Yeah. But there's a ton of ton of people that come out to see this meteor and they're talking about how they want to turn it into a tourist attraction and it's better than a gold mine. And the doctor is saying there's something strange about this meteor. It's too light. Maybe it's hollow. Or, or he's not sure what, and then his Geiger counter starts going off. And he says that's kind of strange that it's radioactive, too. And they decide that they're going to clear people out and post some deputies. Yeah, they finally realize they should have some security around this unknown object. And then they uh, also assign three people to wait there and kind of keep guard I think those guys were deputized. I think those were the deputies. <laughs> so they're they're uh, there, and and the thing is hotter than blazes, and all of a sudden, an opening starts to unscrew itself, and then they're really kind of concerned. What is that? Almost cool now, ain't it? It won't start any more fires. We might as well go home. Yeah, no sense staying out here. Let's go. It's moving! It's a bomb. It don't go off last night. Maybe it's gonna go off now, huh? It's an enemy sneak attack. Let's get out of here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Bombs don't unscrew. It's no meteor, that's for sure. Darndest thing I ever saw. The way that's unscrewing. And I, I love the sound design. I watched this movie again, actually, this morning, right before we recorded, and I was noticing the great sound design. And when the aliens start coming out of the meteor we see this telescoping eye and those three guys want to be friends so they put a yeah. white flag up and they're walking up to it with a white flag and
must be somebody in there. Who? Where'd you think they come from? How would I know? They're in some place. Mars is near the Earth right now. Happens every 18, 20 years, they say. Men from Mars. What do you think? Maybe these are not men. Not like us. Everything human doesn't have to look like you and me. If it's men from Mars, we ought to let them know we're friendly. Don't fool around with something when you don't know what it is. We'd be the first to make contact with them. See? They'd be in all the papers. How about that? We could show them we're friendly, huh? Uh, walk out there with a white flag. Hey, I, I, I got an old sugar sack in my car. What are we going to say to them? Welcome to California. Come on. Understand us? We're talking sign language. They'll understand us all right. Sure. Sure? Everybody understands when you wave the white flag, you want to be friends? Hey there! Open up! Come on out! We're friends! Hey, that's right! We welcome you! We're friends! Yeah! <laughs> Then you hear this zap sound, and those guys are toast. <laughs> Wasn't that sound effect for that uh, death ray well done? And it was done in a simple manner. I forget now how they did it, but it was uh, not high tech at all. And it really works. Yeah, all the, the sound movie. effects for the aliens were really well done. Um, and then the power... So then we cut back from there to town, and they're having a square dance. A hoedown. A hoedown. That guy that was calling out the moves was was a fact. I think he must have also been a, a auctioneer because he was a fast talker. Probably won't be cool for another 24 hours. What do people do around here on a Saturday? They don't do much of anything. There's a square dance at the social hall this evening. Alaman left in a lady's star. Gents walk around, but not too far. Alaman left in a gentleman's star. Ladies walk around, but not too far. And suddenly everything freezes. The, the power goes off. All the watches are frozen in time. Something's happened when that death ray went off. The phones are out. So now they realize, okay, so we've got we've to take this more seriously. So I think at this point they bring in the military and they surround the site. The Marine Corps is there. Yeah, they head back up there just to check it out. And that's where they see those ashes of those three men, the shadows. Oh, that's right, because the death ray does in one of the deputies as he tries to drive away. Exactly. So the police car is zapped, and the doc, Dr. Forrester and the sheriff barely escape. And 
<laughs> and the, the sheriff says, what is that gizmo? And the doctor says, that gizmo is a machine from another planet. <laughs> that gizmo. <laughs> that widget. What is that gizmo? You think that gizmo is a machine from another planet? Better get word to the authorities. Look. Sheriff, you better get word to the military. You're going to need them out here. And then they see more meteors landing around that same area, and that's where they say they better get word to the military. At this point, I think they're beginning to realize that the first one that landed, the one that they were at, was sort of the uh, leader and the control ship for a lot of these others that were landing all over the place. Yeah, they're landing all over the Earth, and we get this radio broadcast, and they spend a good few minutes kind of with this radio broadcast and showing people all over the country and I got a feeling like it was a little bit of a callback to the original radio broadcast that Orson Welles did. Yeah, I think so, for sure. So the military arrives in force, and everybody feels like they've got it under control. But wait. <laughs> but wait, that's not going to happen, because now there are three of these machines. They seem yeah. to travel in, in, uh, in threesomes, and they start to move. I think the general or somebody says they're digging themselves out. And then some planes fly over because they're going to drop all these bombs on it, and you get that other, you get another death ray, and the plane is toast. And then they start attacking more and more. Yeah, it's just a complete disaster area because the Martians are just zapping everything in sight. And this is where it starts to feel a little bit more like a military, like a war movie to me. Yeah, because they open fire and they use all the weapons they have at hand, and the machine, the Martian machines, put up a. Uh, kind of an invisible shield that deflects all of the uh, weapons. They're useless. Yeah. They're useless yeah. against these death rays. And and one of the best scenes in the movie is when that uh, that heat ray, I guess that's called the heat ray, does in the, uh, the uh, colonel or the general, and you see his skeleton. That was a really well done special effect. That was. There's one, there's one part here that I, I really, this is like a real uh, pet peeve for me, which is, You've got this accomplished woman who's got a master's degree, um, obviously very smart, uh, played by Anne Robinson. And up until this point, she's just either been kind of ogling Dr. Forrester or just sort of looking pretty at the dance. And then we get a scene here where she's serving donuts and coffee to all the military people. Yeah. <laughs> and it was exactly like that scene in uh, Thing from Another World where uh, the woman is you know, serving coffee to the scientist when she was also clearly competent and could have been doing other things. I know that so. is so much a, a factor of that time. Yeah, it's just... Given given today and looking back on that, it's like, oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't hold up well. It's just a waste, you know, it's a waste of a good character. I contrast that to the uh, more recent movie where aliens meet Predator and, oh yeah, and they go down in this underground place, and the only person that survives and is able to do battle is this really, really effective woman who uses all the machines and gets the respect of the aliens because of her prowess. Just in general, that that franchise does a better job with female characters for sure. There's one other really, really cool shot where they're putting a forward base together, and this is where the general shows up. 
And there's this really cool scene of the hillsides with this green glowing area off in the distance. And it's just a great shot of like giving you the scale of it and kind of making you feel like you're actually there. And some more really great sound design in that scene. Very effective. And, 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 uh, and uh, Sylvia Van Buren's cousin is a, a pastor. Or uncle, yeah. Uncle. Or uncle, uncle, Dr. Matthew Collins. He decides he's going to try to make some kind of a peace offering to these three machines as they kind of move out of their cover. And he goes out and we get, he, he's, he's speaking from uh, verses from the Bible and the machine just zaps him without any without any second thought or anything. And, yeah, he's, he says that... Uh, real attempt has been made to communicate with him, you know. Let's go back inside, Uncle Matthew. I've done all I can in there. You go back. Sylvia. I like that, Dr. Forrest. He's a good man. Attention all batteries. Careful volley fire. Feet. Prepare for volley fire. What's he think he's doing? Uncle! Uncle Matthew! Too late now. He's too far away. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's seen him. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But yeah, I don't know why he thought that was a good idea because these things had been zapping everything in sight and killing everybody that they saw. That forward base and all of the work of the military is for naught because the uh, devices just mow them down and start spreading out. And there's a great scene a little bit uh, later in the film where they, uh, the military explain, the scientists explain how they do this in formation. They just move and yeah. kill everything in, in uh, that, that, that quadrant. Yeah, they said it's like they're moving through the countryside like a scythe. And this much is certain. It's vital to prevent the Martian machines from linking up. Once they do, they adopt an extraordinary military tactic. They form a crescent. They anchor it at one end, sweep on until they've cleared a quadrant. Then they anchor the opposite end, reverse direction. They slash across country like scythes, wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. I did want to call out a, a great sci-fi line that Dr. Forrester says. He says, 
That skeleton beam must be what they used to wipe out the French city. It neutralizes Maison somehow. They're the atomic glue holding matter together. Cut across their lines of magnetic force and any object will simply cease to exist. Take my word for it, General. This type of defense is useless against that kind of power. It's better that Washington know. <laughs> you know, he's he's more impressed with the technology than anything else. You know. he is. He really is. Well, well, he's he's also an accomplished uh, pilot. Yeah, because he uh, he escapes with Sylvia in a uh, in a military spotter plane, and uh, they can't quite make it out of the danger zone, and they crash land. Yeah, and they hide in this abandoned farmhouse. Yeah, and and after they crash, we get some scenes of Los Angeles, and there's more mobilization of the military, and and they're trying to decide if they should evacuate the city, and the general says there's nothing that's been effective against them, and then we cut back to Dr. Forrester and Sylvia Van Buren, and this is where they're there's this funny little domesticate domestic scene in the house where she's cooking eggs. So here again, she's like, she's in the kitchen cooking. Yes. They're, they're, they're surrounded and, and almost captive by the aliens and she's fixing breakfast, but they begin to feel more close to each other. They're beginning to develop feelings. It's almost like a romance movie here. There's a soft focus and close up on their faces and they're, and she's talking about a time when she was lost as a young person and how, scared she was don't worry but they seem to murder everything that moves if they're mortal they must have mortal weaknesses they'll be stopped somehow i've been as close to them as anyone and never close enough for any real observation i feel like i did one time when i was small awful scared and lonesome i'd wandered off i'd forgotten why but the family and whole crowds of neighbors were hunting for me. They found me in a church. I was afraid to go in any place else. I stayed right by that door, praying for the one who loved me best to come and find me. It was Uncle Matthew who found me. I liked him. He liked you. I could bow my head off. Well, you're not going to. You're not the kind. Look, you're tired. You've been up all night. Cracked up in a plane, slept in a ditch. You want to know something? It doesn't show on you at all. And he says something to her about, just think about everything you've been through, and none of that shows on you. You know, you're really, you're a really strong person. So that's a good scene. I mean, it does show the bond that they're forming, which I think is important for the story. And one of the there's another alien craft that crashes into this farmhouse. Yeah, right there, and it it lands right on the house almost. <laughs> yeah, and they're they're all, the the uh, intruders or the alien invaders uh, send out a, uh, a a device that looks around the house, and that is really well done. Where they this long snake like cobra looking camera comes into the house just i was thinking as i looked at this when i was a kid i thought well this is great i didn't give it any thought but that took a lot of work to pull off oh, yeah. as a special effect because it was all done mechanically and uh, it does look like a giant uh, snake really does it's it, it's well done and the way that they set up the, the 
the scene, there's they're like uh, looking out the window and they see this ship out there and there's these flashing flickering lights on the wall behind them, like supposed to be coming in through the window. And it totally reminded me of the scene in Close Encounters when the aliens are coming. Oh, and, yes, yes. And, you know, all those lights are shining through the door and the windows, and it just felt kind of like that. And I wonder if there was a little bit of influence in Close Encounters from, from that scene in this movie. One of the fun things about us doing these classic movie reviews is as I look at these early movies and then compare them to later ones, there's a lot of, of use of the same kind of ideas and techniques with much more sophisticated special effects and so forth, all the way up yeah. to the current time. Totally, and it and it's it's like so effective, and if it's done within the context of the film, it makes sense, you know. So why not recycle some of these great classic scenes and and make them work for the movie that that is being made at the time, like Close Encounters, and and we even see the alien here, which yeah, is, just which for, was a yeah. shock, you know. It was like whoa, I did not expect that the first time I saw the movie. It just flashes through the screen. I was glad I had it on a recording because I could then replay it again and again and there's you you have hardly any time to see it but you know it that you have yeah and then um kind of moving ahead a little bit uh forrester uh grabs an axe and cuts off the camera uh the front end of the camera and it falls to the ground and then the arm quickly goes back into the ship and they grab the camera forrester and sylvia grab the camera and they escape the building yeah just Just in in time yeah because then the whole thing is blown up. And then we uh, get along. This is, okay, so this is about where the movie starts to drag a little bit for me. Um, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> We're about halfway through, I think. Yeah, maybe maybe two-thirds of the way through. Because we get this long, drawn-out montage of all these scenes from around the world. Of uh, people trying to evacuate the big cities and trying to escape to the mountains and and it really seems like humans are doomed and there's a funny line where a great silence fell over half of europe as all communication was disrupted when the last wire photo out of paris reached the french cabinet exiled in strasbourg they hit upon the idea of using super speed jets as couriers stripped of armament and loaded with extra fuel these planes maintain connection with the Scandinavian countries, North Africa, the United States, and especially with England. It was plain the Martians appreciated the strategic significance of the British Islands. The people of Britain met the invaders magnificently, but it was unavailing. As the Martians swept northward toward London, the British cabinet stayed in session, coordinating every item of information that could be gathered passing it on to the United Nations in New York. From there, the news was forwarded to Washington because here was the only remaining unassailed strategic point. Why are the British Isles so strategic for these aliens? I mean, they they can pretty much go wherever they want. And they've got these <laughs> ships all over the place. I think it's a throwback to the <laughs> beginning of World War II back in the 1930s. Yeah. <laughs> it was the tip of the hat. But then, but then the next line is that Washington D.C. is the last unassailed strategic, you know, headquarters. And then we cut to Washington D.C. and they're making plans. Uh, and this is where they talk about the extraordinary military tactic used by the Martians. They're like scythes sweeping across the country, three cylinders to each group, three machines to each cylinder. How much you want to bet there were three aliens within each ship? You know, and each alien had three eyes. Three eyes, yeah. <laughs> So it's very, very uh, 
geometric. And it was, it's kind of surprising to me that they attack and they didn't attack Washington right right at the at first, since the Pentagon is there and that's where the center of government. That's is. That's what I thought too. But they made a point of saying that the British British Isles were this the strategic significant place. But this is where they decide to use the last ditch effort of the atom bomb. Yes, and the flying wing, which in the, in those days that was a big deal. It was just in the late 40s early 50s they had this plane that that actually worked it was actually able to fly and all but it encountered it encountered significant difficulty in control and they kept crashing because they didn't have the computer technology to keep it uh in the right arc and 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 so forth but it was a i remember that as a kid i was like wow that's a great machine and that's real (laughs) yeah that was cool it was cool it still looks really neat but the bomb does nothing. Yeah, and it's it's between them deciding to use the bomb and we actually getting we and us getting to see the bomb drop. We we cut to another scene where Doctor Forrester and a team of scientists are examining the Martian Eye, and they've somehow figured out how to hook it up to like a projector so they can see what the Martians see. And this was another weird scene with um, Anne Robinson's character where. She's already like terrified of these things, and she's probably somewhat in shock. But then they decide to to shove her face into the camera to see what she looks like through the lens because they want to know why the aliens are so fascinated by her. That's how the Martians see us. spectrum. Their color absorption must be different from ours. Let's see why they were so curious about you, Miss Van Buren. Yeah, and I was like, what, are they fascinated by her? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand that, <laughs> that whole piece of that scene. Well, you know, when you're when you're 12 years old sitting there, it doesn't matter. You're just I was just waiting for the next action to take place. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks cool. <laughs> it looks cool for sure. It just it doesn't really make much sense though when you, <laughs> when you think about it, it. Not not much at all. And things get worse and worse. And there's more scenes of evacuations and yeah. And I was thinking just the logistics of trying to evacuate any city. It's just, it's. Uh, practically impossible, but it, they continue. Well, especially a city the size of L.A., you know. No kidding. There, I did notice one thing this time. There's a scene of Los Angeles in the background, and they're on an overpass with some military trucks and stuff, and you can barely see Los Angeles because of all the smog. It's so smoggy. Yeah, that was that was so true back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's amazing yeah. now. On most days, you don't get that here. Yeah, they've made a good effort to reduce that. Uh, but yeah, tons and tons of scenes of people leaving L.A. And I, I start to get a little bit bored at this point because it's like very repetitive. Well, and, and, and here's where the film sort of goes off track for me. Everybody decides that Pacific Tech is really going to be the answer to the solution of this because they have the resources and the scientific horsepower to figure out is there a way they could develop a virus or a vaccine, which is very appropriate for today's world, um, to, to counteract the effect of these machines because the military hasn't done anything and the hardware isn't working. So they turn right up maybe a dozen people loose 
from Pacific Tech to work on this without one bit of security. There's no military around them. There's no way to keep distance from other people. And then they then they have to move. I think Forrester says, or one of them says, we're going to move to the Rocky Mountains. We'll take all our instruments and establish a base laboratory in the Rocky Mountains. It'll give us time to search out some weakness in the Martians. Forlorn hope. There is a chance we may get a lead from that anemic blood. You mean by some biological approach? We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. But then they leave without any security or guards in a school bus and some trucks. Yeah, and Dr. Forster is loading up the truck by himself, and he's driving the truck. And, like, I get that he's a capable guy, but, I mean, these, these are this is your last-ditch, you know, chance to save the entire planet, and you, you're just letting this guy, like, <laughs> do all this without any help or any military escort or anything? I mean, the people in the school bus get uh, broken into and... Some of them killed and the equipment ruined and foresters attacked and beaten up and the equipment's ruined. And I'm like, come on. Where Why did these... he have to drive through downtown Los Angeles to get out of town? Like it was it, like this. The, yeah, I totally agree. This whole that part, part was... of the movie was weird. So everything has gone awry now. I mean, they've lost any hope of getting the, the answer to to how they can fight these things. And the whole city is ablaze. And then we get several scenes of of Gene Barry running through downtown Los Angeles, and everything is empty. Yeah. So you get the you get the just juxtaposition between these rioting crowds out of control, and then he's all alone in the city. And I'm like, wait a minute, how could that happen? And only only a short amount of time had passed, so it's yeah. like it didn't make sense. And 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 yeah, the 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 spaceships are coming into town and they're destroying the buildings and he's he's looking for uh sylvia van buren and he's going from church to church because i think he thinks i'm not sure what he's thinking but maybe that she's going to hide out at one of these churches it's never really clear and he keeps going from church to church and things are getting worse i mean they destroy the city hall and the rest of the world is crumbling and lo and behold, he finally gets, what is it, the fourth church or something like that. He he goes in and it's a madhouse. And there she is. Yeah. Miraculously. Just out of all the thousands of people, he found her. <laughs> and they they run to each other through the crowd and embrace. And, the, you know, you get the idea of like, they're going to die together in this church. But at least they found each other. And the machines are continuing to pillage and plunder and then I thought it was a really well done effect when they start to to die. The machines start to die. The people, the uh, creatures inside are dying. I thought that was well done when it crashes. Yeah, that was cool. So then the ending of it kind of gets my attention again, where the ships yeah, come, are crashing yeah. into the building, and and uh, you see the hatch on the bottom of the ship open up, and the people kind of gather around, and then this really creepy hand comes out, and and. You could see the blood pulsing through its veins, and then it just dies. That was cool. Do you remember? Because I don't. Were there three fingers on that alien hand? Like everything else was in groups of three. Oh, that's a good. I bet. I, I don't remember that. I don't remember. I bet there. I bet that's true, though. I'm gonna do a quick look here. But yeah. While you're looking that up, I I did a performance review of 
Major General Mann, played by Les Tremaine, and he and he gets does does not does not meet expectations because there's no security for these scientists, the last hope of humankind, and they're on their own in three tr- pickup trucks and a school bus. Yeah, somebody dropped the ball big time. Yeah, no they, the a- aliens do have three fingers, and they have these suction cups on the end of the fingers. And then the the film ends on a higher note that mankind has been saved by a simple germ. But I had an idea for a, a, an alternate ending, okay? Oh, go for it, yes. <laughs> so what if instead of this, this kind of like this crap show at the end of like everybody dropping the ball and, and nobody having a plan, what if they actually did have a military escort out of the city and they, you know, they fought, they sort of like fought their way out of the city and got to the, to the mountains and maybe they don't go all the way to the Rocky Mountains. That's a, that's a heck of a long way. Maybe they go to Lone Pine or something like that. Uh-huh. And and then they set up a base there and they start developing a, a biological weapon. But but it, it's it's sort of like it's it's almost all for naught because the aliens die anyway from a basic cold germ, you know. But I still think it would have been more interesting to have them try to 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 make the virus or whatever they were gonna make. And then to sort of like come to the realization of like, yeah, they were on the right track, but but nature did its job faster. I think that would have been much better. And they could have had the final scene being some kind of a impending battle between the uh, Pacific Tech people and military up at Lone Pine and the ships coming yeah, up the valley. Yeah, yeah. So they could have still made it like exciting and, and action-packed, but... But make the stakes a little higher. Like, yeah, they're about to find the the cure, you know. But then here they come, and there and there's like this wall of of these alien ships coming at them towards the mountains, and they're backed up against the mountains. And this is the last stand, and then they just start to crash, you know, at the very end. And they're all like, "Well, what the heck? We never did. We never launched our biological weapon attack. What's going on?" I think that would have been way cooler and more uh, fun to watch. So, for what it's worth. It's fun to it's fun to redo these. You know. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, well, my rating on I have uh, I, I've developed a new plan. I seem to be doing two ratings on a lot of these films. I give the film a nine or a ten for the special effects and the opening half, and then I give it about a four or five on the last half. <laughs> and yeah. So I, I'm going to come in at uh, I'll go a seven. I'll give it a seven overall. Yeah, you know, it starts off so great, and it just sucks me in. And I love all the little touches of the characters and the funny things that they do, and the cinematography is beautiful. And then, and then all the way up to, I think where they start turning it into like a war movie. I'm pretty engaged, and even some of the scenes where there's the battles are, are pretty exciting. And then about two thirds of the way in, when they cut to that really long montage of of everything happening around the world, I, I feel like it really loses steam. Um, but I would, yeah, I would give the first two thirds about a nine. I really love the first two thirds of this movie and the last two thirds I'd give about a four, the last third, sorry, I can't do math. I would (laughs) give it about a four. (laughs) So yeah, probably a seven seems about right. Yeah. It's a fun movie though. I remember going to that double feature and, uh, at 12 years old, it did none of that mattered to me. It was just action and and uh, suspense and creatures from another world and then i think the double feature was when worlds collide and they build a rocket to go to another planet that's a great movie um uh, but i do I have wanna... another i have another idea for an alternate ending i know we're kind of running <laughs> short on time but what if what if they kept the ending they have but they insert a new scene 
where the general is like, okay, we're going to, we're going to get you all out to the mountains and you're, we're going to set up a base for you. Um, but we're really, we're kind of short on men right now. We need you to go load up in the, in the bus and the, and the truck and we'll be right there. You know, don't go anywhere. We're going to, we're going to come. And then, inst- but then they get like waylaid by a, a crowd of rioting people and they have to escape. They can't wait any longer for yeah. the military to show up. Like they, they, they needed something to bridge from the scene where they're looking at that alien eye camera thing to the scene where they're loading up the truck. It's like, there's, there's nothing there that like bridges that in the exposition. So I don't know that, that might've fixed it a little bit for me. Although there's still way too much time spent just kind of showing these montage scenes from around the world. Well, they went from uh, being in, uh, being on top of the thing and really in charge to total you're on your own, just with no segue at all. Yeah. I needed a segue anyway. All right. I, so... I do want to give a special <laughs> shout out to, uh, the director, though, Brian Haskins, because he also directed another film, or two actually, that I like, Robinson Crusoe on Mars from 1964. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. And The Naked Jungle from 1954, where these a- ants invade a, a, a Brazilian cocoa plantation, and Charlton Heston has to save the day by all kinds of means. Those are both really fun movies. I think that that second one was based on a short story called Linogen and the Ants or something like that. And it's a really good short story. I'd like to see that movie. I I don't know how well it would hold up today. It might be kind of cringy in some parts um, with some of the social stuff, but I don't know. We'll have to add it to our list. (laughs) This was a fun one to do. And and it's, uh, I want to give a shout out to thank you to uh, Arthur Skolko for, uh, his his recommendations for the four films that we've done they've all been really fun and 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 interesting and well done yeah that was that was a fun fun series of movies and yeah i think what we'll do is do holiday affair next and then we'll do mr blanding's builds his dream house just so we can get that holiday affair out uh, in time for the holidays sounds good because it's already december 8th <laughs> what the heck if we're zeroing in, I, yeah. and I watched Holiday uh, Affair again on Turner Classic Movies. I came onto it just as Henry Morgan was the police lieutenant in that scene in the in the, the police department, which is one of my favorite scenes in film. Oh yeah, that's so so <laughs> funny. <laughs> Love that scene. <laughs> oh well, all right. All right. Well, that was our review of War of the Worlds, and coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles is Bob wishing everyone happy movie watching. The Martians had no resistance to the bacteria in our atmosphere to which we have long since become immune. Once they had breathed our air, germs which no longer affect us began to kill them. The end came swiftly. All over the world, their machines began to stop and fall. After all that men could do had failed, the Martians were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things which God in his wisdom had put upon this earth.